Welcome to the Emergency Mind Podcast. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a space where we train ourselves to think and perform better during times of crisis. ER doctors or not, we all face emergencies in our lives, and this podcast is all about getting better at acting during times of uncertainty at stress and learning how to apply knowledge under pressure. So listen up, train hard, and enjoy, because you never know what's coming your way next. To learn more about building your emergency mind and to dig deeper into many of the concepts we get into in this podcast series, head over to our website at emergencymind.com. Okay, this episode is just plain awesome. My guest is Dr. Dan McCollum. Dan is an emergency doctor. He's board certified, and he's one of the associate program directors at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. Dan is a seriously deep thinker. He has a self-professed love for open access medical education, stoic philosophy, metacognition, and a good imperial stout. It's hard to really summarize all of the things we go into because there's just so much depth in this episode, but we focus mainly on the role of stoic philosophy during emergencies. We talk about meditation, about the discipline of constantly learning and being a student, and about how to not make hard things impossible. In case you can't tell, I'm pretty excited about this episode. I really hope you enjoy. As always on this podcast, our mission is to dive into applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide specific medical advice. Additionally, our opinions are our own and not those of our respective employers. All that said, let's get to the episode. I hope you enjoy. All right. Well, Dan, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. I've been been super excited to sit down and, and dig into this with you and, and welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to be here, Dan. Thanks a lot. Right on. We'll get this Dan Dan thing out of the way right at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Phenomenal. Um, so we first started uh, talking about this idea of coming together to do this episode. And, and part of it had to do with sort of thinking during emergencies and thinking under pressure. And part of it had to do with with stoicism and sort of our mutual love for the stoic philosophy. So so why don't we start there, actually? How, how did you first get introduced to stoic philosophy? What what brought that into your life? So there was a um, lecture at the SMAG conference by Scott Weingart called uh, Kettlebells for the Brain. And the two overall thrusts that he was talking about was both the stoic practice of thinking of bad things in advance, the uh, premeditatio malorum that we might discuss a little bit later, as well as some meditation practices. And it was one of those things that I kind of found a way of, hey, I should look into this a little bit. And, it, and I didn't really do anything with it for about a year or two. And uh, just over a year ago, my father passed away. Mm. And Sorry to hear it, that. Oh, well, well, thank you. Um, but, you know, he was on hospice for a while. He had cancer. And right after he passed away, I was kind of looking for, you know, there's got to be something here to to help me kind of in the healing process a little bit. You know, it, it, you know, it was good to spend some time with him, but I needed something more. And, you know, I was just looking through the books that I was supposed to read on my to-do list. And, and I stumbled across a, a book by Irvin um, that was talking about stoicism. And then I just got hooked. Um, it was called A, a Guide to the Good Life. Mm-hmm. And then I just really went down the, the rabbit hole of, you know, this book was great. Let's turn to the primary sources. And uh, much to my surprise, the, the primary sources for Stoicism are just phenomenal. Like they're just such good books in a way that I didn't find with some other philosophical classics that I, I dealt with. Yeah, that's that's I completely agree with you. The the primary sources of Stoicism are, are amazing. Um, and so when you when you went to this conference, the SMAC conference, you were already where in sort of your, your emergency life? So at that point, I was kind of a junior, like freshly minted attending. Okay. I mean, I'm only, you know, six and a half years out right now. So it's not like I'm an old gray hair. 
or anything <laughs> like that. But um, at that point, I was, I was still fairly fresh and, and sort of getting my feet under myself. Nice. And was that the first time that you'd ever heard of stoicism or was it something that had crept up in, in some form before? So I've been a like amateur philosopher for some time, not in like a really organized way. Um, I was the kind of guy that uh, nearly accidentally got a philosophy degree at school. <laughs> I was very uh, disorganized and I just kept taking all these like religion and philosophy courses. But, uh, you know, it was really more of just a vague interest in like the deeper stuff than, than a, a systematic exploration. Gotcha. And, and so you got exposed to this stuff and you started digging in. What was the first sort of primary source that you read? It's got to be the, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which which honestly is uh, to this day my, my absolute favorite book. Uh, it, it's totally amazing, right? And I, I, despite uh, not wanting to give this advice, if you haven't read that, I would stop listening to this podcast and go find <laughs> that book and, and pick that up and dig into it. That is just so full of incredible lessons about life. ER doctor or not, it's it's uh, an absolute treasure trove of of learning and sort of self reflection, um, and, and it really is, of course, Marcus Aurelius's sort of notes to himself, like his meditations to himself about life. Um, no, it's, could, it's absolutely incredible, as you as you said. I mean, there, there's just no way to say how like each and every page just has this like gut punch versus gut punch, I and mean, just one after another of amazing amazing quotes. I, I just looked at my my copy as I was dog hearing like every page. I'm like, that's not really how dog earring works. Like it doesn't actually help you if you, if you, if you highlight every word. So it, it really is amazing how through kind of an accident of history, we ended up getting this incredible book. Yeah, totally, totally incredible. And so how did you start bridging those sort of stoic philosophy concepts into emergency practice? Well, at first it didn't really hit me that it had a lot to do with my quote unquote day job of being mm -hmm. a emergency medicine physician. And then I realized as I kind of got my mind right, as, as I was thinking more properly and, and being just more content, I just felt more comfortable. So before, I guess I'd kind of gotten lucky that I was cool enough under pressure to where I didn't melt down during a, a resuscitation or a nasty trauma that comes in. But it wasn't really intentional. It was more just a, a luck-based thing. And then after I, I got more and more into stoicism, I was thinking, oh, I can go from sort of you know, a guy that was accidentally good at, at boxing to someone that was actually training hard and, and like, here's how you actually throw a punch, you know, and, hmm. and really honing those micro skills that you need to actually stay cool during a, a critical resuscitation. Oh, yeah, man. Let's dig into that. Tell me about that. What is What does that mean to you? What are the micro skills you need to stay cool during a resuscitation? Well, I mean, a, a lot of people, they when you see someone that's a, a virtuoso at something, you, you watch a cellist play or something like that, and you say, wow, Yo-Yo Ma's really great at the cello. And Yo-Yo Ma is really great at the cello, like no no doubt. But it's not this impossible thing to, to get good at playing the cello if you break it down into the smaller parts. You know, what is each hand doing? How is it that you're keeping rhythm? All, all those bits and pieces. And I can't play the cello at all, but, but if you broke that those pieces down, you could learn those tiny skills. And so if you watch what seems on the outside, like how on earth is this, this man or woman that's running this code, run it so smoothly and so calmly? How, how are they staying calm? You know, there's a 22-year-old that doesn't have a pulse. Like, why aren't they just losing their mind right now? Um, if you really break down the, the fine skills of what they're doing, how they're communicating, how they're breathing, what they're thinking internally, how they're, they're carrying themselves, those are, are all learnable skills if you practice them. Hmm. 
Interesting. So, so you're reflecting on what I think is a very common occurrence for most of us in emergency medicine, which is especially the first couple of times you watch somebody do do a code or do a procedure. It seems like they're an absolute alien, like inhabiting a human <laughs> skin, right? You're like, like you're displaying none of the emotions that I understand and none of your physiology makes any sense to me, despite having usually gone through medical school at this point. Um, <laughs> you know, and and somewhere in there you realize, well, okay, that's they're probably not actually an alien. And if they got there, then I can get there. And so you sort of start investigating these paths. Um, and breaking it down like that is is a really, really key component. Do, do you remember when you started to sort of consciously break that down? Uh, you know, it, it really wasn't in the same time that I was reading more and more like the meditations and whatnot and and sort of applying um, different approaches to it. So I was I was getting into meditation at the same time mm. and thinking of, you know, slow breathing, you know, whether you call it tactical breathing or square breathing or, or whatever you call it, just just taking a deep breath and sort of checking your own pulse. As I tried some of those different skills, it just all kind of came together to where it's a little hard to say, oh, this was clearly from Seneca. You know, this was clearly mm-hmm. from Marcus, as opposed to just all of these things came together to, to just make me feel a sense of comfort that before I didn't have. And, and until I had it, I didn't know that it was missing, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you were able to use sort of your own um, internal compass about how the the practice was going to guide you in terms of what your next steps were. Exactly. Exactly. Huh. Huh. And that's got to be very interesting because because now, as I understand it, one of your jobs is that you're you're an APD, an assistant program director, and so a lot of what you do is spending time teaching the next generation of ER doctors. Um, so it's, that's got to be different because in some sense you're instilling that to them a lot earlier than than you or, or I even were sort of like privy to those kind of ideas. Oh, yeah. And uh, you look at how good the residents are these days. Like, I am so lucky to have got into emergency medicine because <laughs> if I was, you know, trying to do it nowadays, I look at how good these kids are and how good their CVs are. Like, I, I just couldn't make it. But one of the, one of the really amazing things is is when you try to teach them, you know, they, they see you run a code and say, hey, that was a really quiet code. There wasn't a lot of yelling and panic and scrambling about, but it was just smooth. Like, what were you doing? And then when you have to articulate it and actually explain, oh, so this is what I was doing. This was an example of closed loop communication. This was an example of me intentionally speaking a little bit quieter than everyone expected me to. This was, you know, an example of me taking a breath before picking up the laryngoscope blade. As you sort of break it down, it actually reinforces all of those things. And in many ways, made me a much better resuscitationist because I had to explain it to some really, really good residents that were working with me. And as you're thinking with them about those micro skills, do you have sort of an explicit, like almost like an artist, like a palette of different colors where each micro skill is its own thing that you, that you drill, or do they sort of come up naturally for you in the course of a resuscitation like that? It's a little bit of both. I, I mean, I think some of it has to do with what stage we are in the resuscitation. You know, is it before the patient even gets there, where you can sort of lay down the groundwork of, of this is how things are going to go. Um, is it while things are going well during a resuscitation, in which case you, you kind of just need to keep the plane flying in the air? Or, or is it when things have gone terribly awry, when, when you, you get that unexpected punch to the face that you weren't expected and, and the patient suddenly has a downturn? Mm-hmm. I think that each of those like kind of different types of, of flavors of resuscitation kind of dictates what you need to do. You know, when, when things are really going off the rails is when I really find things like tactical breathing, 
um, to be more helpful. While before the patient gets there, some of the, the skills that the Stoics really reflected on, such as the premeditatio malorum, really resonates as far as, okay, if this person loses their pulse, this is what I'm going to do. If if the lung is down on one side on this GSW patient, this is what I'm going to do. Tell me more about that. When when you're getting ready, when you know the, the radio goes off and you've got two minutes before this massive uh, trauma, let, let's say it's, a, it's a, a GSW to the chest, like you said, a gunshot wound. This patient's coming in, you know they're going to be sick. The ambulance team sounds a little, a little frenzied on the radio. How are you using those stoic skills then? Well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with some of the things that, that Marcus um, and, and Seneca as well often uh, mentioned that you had to sort of control some of those passions. You know, the, the natural feeling is the panic. You know, someone just took a bullet to the chest. Like, that's not good, right? And instead, just sort of <laughs> True. You know, just sort of slowly catch it and just like, hey, you know, it's, it's natural for me to have that initial fear. You know, that, that fear of, of my patient might be really sick, that fear of I might fail in front of everyone, that, that I might not be good enough. Um, but just because that happened doesn't mean I need to accept that as a truth, that I can say, no, I've trained a long time for this. I've, I've really practiced a lot for this. I'm, I am ready for this. Um, and to sort of accept that, you know, sort of locus of control that what, what is and is not out of my control, that I, I can't dictate whether that bullet actually passed through the heart or if it went harmlessly off of a rib and everything's actually totally fine. I can't control that, but I can control uh, my readiness and my team's readiness to be ready to do a thoracotomy if we have to. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bouncing before, back and forth between thinking about the stoic point of view to that and remembering these individual cases where those moments come up because you, know, you can read the stoic philosophers and you can front load these ideas and then you get in there and it's actually the blood and the screaming and the everything else. So how do you map, how do you bridge that? How do you map these ideas that you read directly onto that patient? It's you know, honestly a lifelong practice. And that was one of the things that really drew me to the Stoics is if, if you look at some other philosophical schools, they act as if you, if you just think perfectly, everything falls into line. And, and the Stoics really talked a lot against that, that it was, it was a practice that you go out there and you get your your hands dirty and you, you get your nose bloodied. You, you go out there and try stuff, and and by by doing it, you actually learn the philosophy more than just thinking correctly, like a, a Plato might tell you to do. Um, it, it it really was a lot more about you just keep going at it again and again. You, you try it in resuscitation after resuscitation, and learn from when you came up short, when you when you did panic, when the airway didn't go the way you expected, when you did lose your cool because the the trauma surgeon was a little grumpier than they they, they might have ideally been. Hmm. Yeah, there's this uh, Indian philosopher, Krishnamurti, that I really enjoy, who wrote this book, Think on These Things. And one of the things he says in there is that, that there is no truth apart from daily life. There's no theoretical sort of abstract truth that doesn't apply to the, the dirt and the days that you spend in it, right, to, to being there in the middle of it. Um, now, now, you mentioned previously uh, reading quite a bit of other classics and sort of being an almost accidental philosopher. Um <laughs> Which is, which is a great way to put that. Uh, what other sort of, or I guess I'd ask, are there other lines of thoughts sort of outside Stoic philosophy that have really influenced you sort of both in or out of the emergency department? I mean, there's a, a dabbling here and there. None of them resonated even nearly as much as the Stoics. Uh, some of the Enlightenment philosophers, you know, Hume and Locke and whatnot were, were influential in some ways, but those were almost more of sort of hobbies than like something that's really going to change what I, I do in the emergency department. Um, some of the Eastern 
um, philosophies that sort of bridge more into religion. I think there's some beautiful Taoist um, stuff out there. The, the Tao Te Ching is something that just has a lot of beautiful things in it. And I think that has a little bit of impact on, on how I carry myself in the department. But it, it's a little bit less direct because one of the things the Stoics did so well was just really spell out specifics of, of this is a, a direct practice that you ought to do. And that's honestly missing from a lot of particularly the modern philosophers. When you're teaching your residents some of these ideas, uh, sort of no matter what stream they're coming from, do you actually directly quote the Stoics? Because I'll couch that slightly by asking, sometimes I think my residents are a little sick of me talking about Marcus Aurelius <laughs> in the middle of a shift. <laughs> I wonder if you have that same thing. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it, there, there is certainly a truth of, of just like, oh, I've got this amazing truth. I just want to tell everyone. And, and I don't want to be that guy that, you know, suddenly started doing CrossFit and just wants to never stop <laughs> telling everyone about how they, they're into paleo or CrossFit or, or any number of entirely justifiable things that honestly, you can just keep it to yourself, man. Like you, it, it's fine. Um, I, I do think it's important enough, though, that, that it does come up some. And a handful of my residents are, are pretty on fire about this. You know, I've you know given a few of them copies of, of the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, and and a few of them like it really hit them hard. And and I just kind of think of, of a lot of the residents coming at it from different places. That some of them are are much more blue collar, and they, they kind of want a much more direct set of marching orders of okay, you have a chest pain, this is what you do. And some of them really want to dive into the the deeper bits that that really can be there of, of that metacognition piece of, of how do you think about how you're approaching your patients. And that applies obviously to the whole to the whole life cycle of the experience, like you said as well, right? Like the planning, sort of how do you set up a system that's able to absorb multiple casualties or sick patients? How do you envision what's coming next? Then obviously those, you know, the, the microcosm of the first moment of an emergency case, which is often one of the most pressing and sort of harried times, and then moving that through all the way to the ultimate ultimate end, which sometimes is, is death and suffering. Um, you know, I, I, I think we probably both agree in addition to, you know, having wonderful names right together <laughs> exactly. uh, that we both probably agree that stoicism has a lot to offer on all of those fronts. Um, and that as emergency doctors, we really need those thoughts to be clear, crisp, and sort of organized in all of those individual pieces. Um, I wonder if it's worth diving into to one of them in particular. So recently I've had several residents come up and talk to me about how to handle the first couple moments of a code, right? So either they're starting a code in one of their own patients, their patient's heart is stopped, where they're called out of the ER to run a code on the floor and they arrive on a scene that's maybe a little bit frantic. How do you train your residents to handle those first couple moments? Oh, it's it's so tough. And I think it's one of the hallmarks of, of emergency medicine training, to be honest, of being able to handle that. I think that the first thing is to, to sort of establish who's in control. Mm -hmm. And if it's unclear who that is, then for better or worse, it's, it's you. Um, there, there's so many codes where, you know, I was, think back to when I was a resident on the floor and you, you come in and there's, you know, 15 doctors in the room, but, but no one's really sure who's in charge. And if that's not clearly the case, someone, someone needs to, to own it. Um, and if someone else actually is running the code, great, like just be the best worker bee that you can to, to assist them in any way. And there, there's a piece that comes over the rest of the team when they realize that the resuscitation leader is cool, calm, and collective, that they've, mm -hmm. they've been here before, they've mentally thought through this. And so a lot of it, as far as how do you, you have the, bur the best 15 seconds of the initial start of the code, that's where a lot of codes are won and lost. And mm -hmm. I think the preparation for that 
that you do in the days, weeks, and months before that code is really how you get great at it. Um, because that natural human instinct of, of this is a patient that's that's dead in front of me, it's such a gut shot that, that you can't really come to grips with it unless you've really owned it. So so some of the, the, the methods such as the premeditatio malorum where you really dwell on what's it like to have someone in front of you, you know, what's it like to code a three-year-old that's in front of you and really feeling all of those feels that you have in advance. Until you've done that, you're not really ready um, to actually walk into that room and lead a code team of, of a three-year-old that's, that doesn't have a pulse. So that, that's the first and foremost part is that, that preparation piece that I think Stoicism does so well. And then from there, just sort of emanating the calmness of, we got this as a team, let's, let's form it together. And that, that ad hoc basis of, you don't always have the chance to assign different roles in, in the resuscitation before they come in. It's very helpful if you can, but if you can't, how to, to rapidly assign different roles, because that way those people can do their best at that job that they've been assigned. Hmm. And so do you all actually practice sort of visualizing codes quietly by yourself sort of before anything comes in? Yeah, I, I try to um, instill that practice in residents. Sometimes they'll have uh, mundane patients, for example, and I'll say, well, what if this patient that you just presented me with this fairly benign complaint, what if they coded right now? What would you do? Or mm -hmm. what if they had a seizure right this second? What would you do? And, and sometimes that sort of microdose of, of premeditatio malorum makes them prepare themselves for something that's truly unexpected that they didn't see coming um, because you can kind of transform that more mundane back pain patient or hypertensive patient or, or whatever and sort of make it um, something where they can prepare themselves more fully. Dan, I, I love that. Microdosing premeditatio malorum. What, what an awesome way to say that, <laughs> right? Because I think implicit in that is this idea that that thinking ahead like this is its own skill, that getting into the groove of saying, hey, things are going to go wrong and I have to be ready is its own skill. And the way to practice that skill, like anything, is to break even that skill down into its components and to practice, practice, practice. And so that idea of I'm just going to constantly microdose myself with this, you know, this sort of like thinking about bad stuff is just just amazing. <laughs> well, I think we have this nasty habit of, of, of thinking very binary, like you're either doing something all the way or not at all. You know, I, I talk to residents about meditation, for example, and some of them are like, there's no way that I can sit there for 10 or 20 minutes by myself with my own thoughts, which honestly tells me that they, they need to do so. But mm -hmm. even if you can't do it for 10 or 20 minutes, you know, can you do it for 60 seconds? You know, even those smaller bits and pieces of it, you know, you, you don't necessarily have to be a, a black belt in martial arts. You You can get a fair chunk of the benefit of that by just trying it a little bit, you know, doing something small as opposed to pretending that, that you have to, for an entire hour, think about the death of your child. You know, that, that's too much for really anybody. But, but by taking small bits and pieces, you, you can get a pretty good meal without having to, to have all nine courses. For sure. And and if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with some of the Stoic philosophy, that idea about thinking about the death of your own child is a very formalized Stoic practice um, that sort of gets you into the idea of remembering that all of the stuff that is around you might be lost one day. And in fact, over a long enough time frame will be lost. And so that allows you to sort of... Uh, introduce into your own life these disturbances um, and think through how you would handle them. Because sort of implicit in that also is this idea that that comfort is not the goal, right? Comfort is the enemy in some sense, especially for ER doctors, right? We have to be ready to always be uncomfortable and to throw ourselves into these uncomfortable positions. And so 
again, to borrow your words here, we constantly microdose ourselves with discomfort in order to get ready for that. Absolutely. I want to go back for one second to meditation in particular. Um, you know, that's a thing that, that many folks on this podcast have talked about in the past. Um, how did you get into a meditation practice and, and what does that actually mean for you? So I, I started and failed multiple times of doing it on my own. You know, I just didn't have the, the discipline to do it, um, to be honest. I didn't see the initial benefit the first handful of times I would do it. And so I had these aborted attempts where I tried for a week and then it'd fall off the wagon and mm-hmm. had to come back to it again. Um, I, I personally found a lot of help with the um, uh, Sam Harris waking up app. That's mm-hmm. personally what worked for me. And it honestly is, it's not that I would tell others that they need to try this, but they, I think a lot of the apps help a lot more than reading on meditation, which I had done a fair bit. And the books don't seem to resonate as much as like an app-based thing because it, it really makes it easy to at least get started. And if you if you find a, a voice that works for you or a particular style or approach that works for you, both your toleration of, of mysticism versus hard rationalism or, or even just someone's voice bugs you, like that's not going to be a, a successful um, guide for at least your initial meditation attempts. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And did you start... Um either through those apps or otherwise just sort of in the same way of microdosing, just starting a little bit every day? Or was there sort of like a, uh, a jump in the cold water, both feet first sort of shock initial part? For me, I, I had to actually jump in the water for this one. And, and the water wasn't very deep. I wasn't doing any, you know, hour long meditations initially or anything like that. It was, it was all 10 minutes or so to start with, but really it was much more of a of a, a daily habit type thing of every single day, I'm gonna do this for at least 10 minutes, even if I'm tired, even if I've got a shift that meant that I, I couldn't do it until nine o'clock at night or something like that. Every day I just had this commitment. Um, and that was really the, 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 the key to open the lock of me just being a regular meditator is I'm not allowed to skip a day. Do you meditate on shift ever? I, I rarely have time to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. uh, our, our particular um, shop is, is fairly busy. It is something that I, I've really toyed around with a lot because I've noticed some days where I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm overwhelmed or something and just having a, a 90 second walk, just like loop around the department and then come back to my chair. It comes back like refreshed um, in a way that would be far better than me just picking up the next chart, as it were. You know, it's, it's all electronic, of course, but instead of just rushing to see that next patient, taking a moment to make sure that I am mentally where I need to be in order to properly give all of myself to that next patient and not carry the last resus that may or may not have went well with me into this other room mm-hmm. to a patient that really doesn't deserve me at, you know, 30% of my best. They, they deserve me as, as, as much as I can give of them. Yeah. Let's, oh man, let's press on that. That's such a rich, rich topic. The idea of how to let you know, one wave sort of go through you and pick back up at the next place. How do you do that? What have you trained yourself to do in that moment? I mean, a, a lot of this has to do with something I used to be entirely lacking in, which was uh, self-compassion. Um, there's a lot of interesting psychological research about forgiving yourself. Um, and it really came down to the fact that I was just unduly harsh on myself. Any tiny thing that would go wrong during resuscitation just... I, I would just beat myself up over it so hard. But it, if I sort of reflected back and said, hey, if one of my friends that was also an ER doc did exactly the same thing that I did, I would absolutely tell him or her, 
hey, that, that's okay. You're human. Like, the, you know, a tiny mistake was made. That's okay. That's the nature of our job is that we're not perfect. Um, but I wasn't able to do that for myself, even though I would absolutely have done it for a friend. And mm -hmm. so sort of reflecting that, yeah, I too am human. I too am going to screw up um, early and often. Mm -hmm. And the quicker I can forgive myself on that, the, the quicker I can grow from it to learn whatever it was that, that I can do better the next time, as well as, you know, dust myself off and, and be ready for that next patient that, that may really need me to be my best. And logistically, when you're, when you're, let's say you're, you know, walking out of room seven and heading to room 10, and you're thinking about that idea of dusting yourself off and getting back, back on your feet, what do you do right then? What is your dust off? Do you have a ritual? Do you have a thing you think about or a phrase? How does that work for you? So the, the two things that I, I most commonly come to is, is I'll, I'll go to the, the water machine and drink one cup of, of water from one of those like terrible styrofoam cups that we have next to the water machine. <laughs> and uh, it takes a little bit of time to do. You know, it's, it's something that to, to walk to the machine and actually take it's like 30 seconds or so of your time. So it's, it's no meaningful part of your shift. Um, I, I find myself chronically dehydrated on shift because I'll realize that I've, you know, gone eight hours without drinking anything, you know, mm -hmm. just a terrible self-care right there anyway. But it also is just kind of refreshing because because that that cup of water is, is just me. And, and it honestly, just the cold water hitting me is, is enough to to sort of make me think like, oh, OK, let's start fresh time. Um, and the other big thing is is just taking a few deep breaths, like really, really deep. All I got breaths is enough to to sometimes sort of reset me. Uh, that's what I'll, I'll use more commonly if there's, you know, three or four resuscitations that are happening at the same time. And one of them isn't going well, but I, I know that I have to bounce back and forth between a couple of rooms if, if a pair of nasty traumas come in or one patient's coding and another DKA patient rolls in or something like that. I, you know, sometimes have to, to do something like that more quickly even. Hmm. And how did you develop those ideas? Uh, entirely by accident. <laughs> really, I would love to say, oh, yeah, I, I sat down with a notebook and said, this is exactly what I had to do. Uh, but it, it honestly just one day I did it and I was like, oh. That, that actually works kind of perfectly for me, um, depending on the amount of time. If, if, you know, I'll even take that cup of water for a walk and make one quick loop around our department, which takes like 30 seconds to do. And, and you just feel kind of refreshed. Um, mm -hmm. I, I've spoken to some uh, international docs at some of the SMAC conferences, and, and a few of them um, actually had like 10-minute breaks built into their shift, which I thought was kind of brilliant of, of how much more efficient would I actually be if on some of my rougher shifts, I had 10 minutes just to recalibrate wh whatever that looks like for me, um, how much better would I have been all shift? And it honestly makes a lot of sense to me and is a little bit of indictment of, of our constant you know, false belief that by, by just running to the next room, we're going to become more efficient as opposed to making sure that you're, you're ready for that run. Yeah, that, that is so true. I mean, you have to be in balance in order to do anything as an emergency doctor, especially leading the team and, and understanding that skill of returning to balance as quickly as possible, certainly, but, but ultimately that you have to return to balance before you make your next move um, is so, so clutch. And I think something that takes a long time to learn, uh, especially during residency, you know, all of us go through you know, for me, and I think for a lot of us, it was sort of like the middle or end of second year where you hit that really low period where things start going really bad. And, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure, yeah. man. Right. And you try to start to learn, OK, hey, I, I need to take care of myself a little bit because I need to be on balance if I'm going to do anything 
worthwhile. I, I love what you're saying there with returning to balance. I, I've never heard that phrase before, but it makes so much sense. Like a, I, I've seen so many um, residents and myself that would feel guilty that they were taking, you know, 60 seconds to eat a cliff bar or something like that. And it, it that, that guilt isn't needed. Like you're, you're human, right? Like you, you aren't built to, you know, work for 10 hours straight with no food. Like it's, it's okay to get yourself right before you, you go take care of that next patient. You know, when I was doing more, um, more Muay Thai on a regular basis, my coaches used to say that you can throw the technique sort of from anywhere, but if you can find yourself returning to the pocket, to the space where you're most on balance and most centered, that's where you're really going to be able to deliver the power and the focus from. And so that idea of like, as emergency doctors, you know, we pride ourselves on no matter what, you can be hungry, tired, and dehydrated. You could not drink for eight hours. You would still give it every ounce of everything you had. But that doesn't mean that you have to do that. Right. That doesn't mean that that's optimal. <laughs> yeah. I, no, that's, that's so true. Like we, we catch ourselves, you know, and I still believe that you you do sink to the level of your training instead of rising to the occasion. Like I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you have to try to, to hit a major league fastball while you still have the weights on your back. Like there's no <laughs> need to make this impossible job even harder by like, yeah, yeah, I could go see that chest painter while in a completely dehydrated state. Does that make any sense? You know, but, but we see ourselves doing this all the time. Hmm. The, the, in episode um, three, I think it was, I was talking to Amy Hildreth, a friend of mine who's, a, who's an, an ER doctor in the U.S. Navy, and she said something very similar. So, so you just said this idea of don't make the hard impossible, which is, which is great. There's no reason to make this job harder on ourselves um, or to make any emergency situation harder than it has to be. Uh, Dr. Hildreth says it slightly differently in some sense where she goes, um, try to avoid unnecessary opportunities for failure. Try just not mm. to shoot yourself in the foot, essentially. Um, and I think that a lot of what we do in terms of our ability to, to function at a super high level, in part is just doing that, is not taking a hard thing and make it impossible, not take a hard thing and unnecessarily fail at it. Um, and I wonder the link between that and what you were talking about sort of earlier on in terms of the day-to-day -day habits of, of thinking to yourself and sort of metacognition about how you think. So how do we do that, right? How do we catch ourselves making hard into impossible? How do we catch ourselves failing unnecessarily? And, and how do we start learning how to do better? I mean, that's a really fascinating question. I mean, I think so much of my job is about doing a huge number of tiny things properly as opposed to the one big thing. You know, outside the room, if you've never intubated a patient, it looks like an intubation attempt is just this one me putting the tube through the cords and that, that's all it looks like. But it, it's really, you know, 20 tiny things that, that you had to do right from the exact way that you positioned the patient to what you did with their jaw to, to how you swept their tongue out of the way. And I think a big part of, of that not making it unnecessarily hard is just catching ourselves before we make half a dozen tiny errors that would make that intubation nearly impossible. Uh, you know, by, by just making sure that we, you know, ritualistically go through the same steps every time so that it would be unnatural for us to, to walk up to a patient and them not being pre-oxygenated before we try to intubate them or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, because that those habits sort of add up over time and then as they become more natural, eventually you are intubating like a pro to where that person outside the room that doesn't know what you're thinking and doing would say, oh, that just seems so smooth. 
when really you're thinking like, oh, there's like the 30 little tiny things that I do every time before I, I attempt an intubation. Right. And out of those 30, probably in any given intubation, some of them are totally on autopilot once you've intubated a lot. Some of them are, you know, devoting some of your focus to some of them are maybe under experimentation where you're saying, hey, I, you know, this one piece, I'm really tinkering. I've got the I've got the hood up on part number 36 or whatever it is that that I'm trying to figure out exactly the right way to do this. What's like that for you? What parts of your sort of approach to resuscitation or to the, the really deepest cases, what parts are under experimentation for you? Oh, I love that question, actually. I, some things are almost more science-based questions of what's the ideal way to pre-oxygenate patients before you intubate them. You know, you dive through the literature a little bit and, you know, try this and try that. Is nasal oxygenation the way to go? You know, it, it, should I be using a, a PEEP valve on a BVM? Some, some of them are more that way. Um, but increasingly, a lot of them are just the ways that I communicate with the the team. So the, the concept of a zero point survey of of discussing with the team before the patient rolls up. You know, while we're waiting on a trauma patient to come in, exactly what language am I using when I when I'm talking to the trauma resident that's coming down and the the nurse that's in the recess bay with me and and so forth. Um, a lot of it has to do with the, that exact phrasing. You know, exactly how do I refer to people? How do I ask them what their name is in a smooth way that, that doesn't make it obvious that, no, I, I actually don't know that resident's name. <laughs> that, that type of stuff is, is, is really what a lot of is, is actually under the hood, like I'm tinkering with it right now. Hmm. And, and as you're doing that, do you how does experimentation work for you? Like, do you have the equivalent of a lab notebook where you're really sort of digging into the the effects of these different experiments? Or is this more of, hey, I'm going to try 10 things today and just sort of by gut or feel pick the one that has the best sort of mojo to it, for lack of a better word? Well, before you asked me that question, the answer was no, I did not have a lab notebook. But now I'm really excited about the idea of trying that out and, and seeing. Because, uh, yeah, honestly, like I'll, I'll find myself forgetting some some things that I used and then like falling back on it like months later. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the right way to, to, to talk to those folks. But a lot of it is, for, for better or worse, gut feel. And and I think a lot of the most fascinating bits to me of, of the task of medicine is farther and farther away from the sciencey bits, which I love EBM, and, and that's what a lot of my lectures and whatnot are, are on, but exactly how we communicate to, to mm -hmm. patients, their families, the staff, and whatnot, that's that's a lot of what's under the hood that I'm, I'm still playing around with. And and to be honest, you know, I mean, your, your podcast is certainly a, a step towards some, some bits of that. We don't have nearly as much direction on that as we do towards the, the more mundane sciencey bits of, oh, you, you have a pneumothorax, what should you do? We, we have lots of information on that, but precious little about exactly how do you, you carry yourself about, how do you talk to nurses, and how do you talk to patients? But that's you know probably 90% of my job, if I really get down to it, about whether it was a good or bad shift, is, is how those social skills and those communication skills actually work. Right. And, and what are those components, the, the hidden almost components of the whole act that really make the biggest difference in there? You know, because you're right that some of them are science driven, but so many of them are still open ended and, and there's not a real answer in any meaningful way, in part because people are so different and each of us, it's, it's up to each of us to figure out our own path through it. Um, the episode hasn't come out yet, but what's what's going to be episode 12 uh, is uh, with 
a wonderful doctor at LA County, uh, Emily Rose, who talks a lot about the idea of each of us running our own race and the idea that each of us is out here to try to figure out our own path through um, this mix of humanity and medicine and everything else. It's uh, beautiful. <laughs> oh, it's great. Yeah, it's it's she's awesome. Um, and part of that, I think, is the idea that it's up to each of us to experiment for ourselves to figure out what works. And I think this is really hard, especially at an academic teaching center where we're so used to having it be that, you know, the attendings have the knowledge and we help the residents get the knowledge as if it's like a one way street like this. And mm -hmm. I think in reality, it's very it's it should be much different than that. It should be the idea that all of us are ER doctors who are trying to get better. And if we're all trying to get better, we all must be constantly experimenting. None of us have the answer. We all have to be engaged in this sort of group culture of each of us trying and experimenting. So I think I think we're gonna have to make emergency mind lab notebooks as like <laughs> That sounds amazing. I, you know, I, I tell residents all the time that I, I learn um, so much from them that I, I'm learning as much from them as they are from me. Absolutely. And I honestly think that none of them believe me. Like, I think that they all just think that I'm I'm lying. But but honestly, just sort of watching and learning and, and seeing their different approaches, the, the things that they brought with them from prior experiences that they've had. And I, I watch them talk to a patient or a family or how they run a code when I'm kind of giving them the reins to to run the code themselves. And it, it just strikes me like, oh, I, I'm totally stealing that because she said that so beautifully to, to that trauma surgeon. Like I, I, I'm going to use her phrasing there. Um, that it really is amazing the the diverse paths that people bring and, and whether that's going to work for me or not. I'm, I'm just not a big gruff dude. And there's I've got some residents that are like ex-special forces, big gruff dudes. I'm like, that absolutely will not work for me. But it's really interesting to watch what the team does when he does that, you know, and, and, and sort of experiment, you know, to, to run your own race, as you said. Dan, thank you. Thank you so much for digging into this with me. Uh, there's just, there's so many threads here. Like we're going to have to, we're going to have to like come back together and do a version two of this sometime in the very near future. I'd love um, that. We're amazingly already at like 45 minutes, give or take. So <laughs> it doesn't feel like you're right. It, it really I feel like doesn't. We just started. Seriously, um, I wanna I wanna bring together a couple of the threads that we um, that we've been digging into. You know, the first is really Stoic philosophy and how how important that is. And again, if you if you're an ER doctor and you have not been exposed to Stoic philosophy, if you're a medical student, if you're even thinking about you know, applying knowledge under pressure, go out there and read the Stoics, read Marcus Aurelius. It just is good for everybody. Um, we talked about this amazing idea of microdosing premeditatio malorum, you know, the idea of, of bringing these little instances to your life about thinking about what could go wrong and making that part of your discipline about constantly being engaged in that. Um, we talked a little bit about the idea of meditation practice uh, in terms of how to jump in for yourself and then, and then implicit in that was this idea of not trying to seek perfection in meditation or in anything, but just getting started, just getting out there and getting your feet wet into it. Um, we talked about how to do a dust off, how to move between one room and another, uh, and the idea of the, the importance of drinking water, which, man, maybe we'll make emergency mind like water bottles and you're up first for all oh, these yeah. things, which is great. <laughs> but, um, and we talked about this in this really deep idea of don't make hard things impossible. 
about trying to figure out in your own mind how, how you can get to a place where you're able to absorb the difficulty to move forward and meet it without making it unnecessarily impossible. Um, and then, and then just because we covered so much, the, the last thing I have down here is this idea of, of how all of these big skills that seem so monolithic and universal are really made up of these smaller ideas and how so much of your job is to do the small things right over and over again every shift. Um, did, did I miss anything in there? Is there anything else that jumps, that jumps out at you as a big theme? Uh, no, no, you, you did a beautiful job summarizing it. Oh, right on, man. And and as we're wrapping up here, um, do you have any challenges that you want to issue? And this could be Ooh. either to uh, this could be either to another doctor or another person that you want to see come on the podcast and talk about how they get it done, or it can be an open-ended challenge to anybody um, or any type of person that you're working with. Something you want to be seeing from people. Um, and I'll say, as you're thinking about that, that my challenge would be to any of the academic ER doctors who are out there listening to this, to understand that we're all out there experimenting together. And so the challenge for me is on your next shift, when you're working with folks, how can you make that more explicit? How can you show that culture of experimentation to everybody? I think that's a beautiful challenge itself. Um, I, I guess my my open-ended challenge would be to um, to just try reading Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. The um, Hayes translation is my favorite in paper, and uh, of the translations that are available in audio, the uh, Hammond translation that's available in Audible is my favorite. So after uh, futzing around with quite a few different copies of it, um, those are, are, are my two favorites by far. Dan, thank you so much, man. I, can't, I already can't wait to have you back for, for round two for this. Uh, Dan, it's been an absolute honor. I, I look forward to many future nerdy jamming sessions with you. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emergency Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, but more importantly, I hope you found something in there that you can use next time you find yourself in the middle of an emergency. To learn more about what we talked about in this episode and about building your emergency mind in general, head over to our website at emergencymind.com.